Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 9. Today's topic, The Philosophical Canon. Hey everyone, and welcome to another session of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Ammon Allred. I'm Shannon Musset. And I am the Lee Johnson Mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so... Our goal in this podcast is to recreate the kinds of conversations that happen after a great day of conferencing when you sit down together at the bar after the fact. And with that in mind, hey, Shannon and Lee, can I get your guys' drink orders and can you tell me where you just came from? I will happily have a white wine spritzer. Thank you very much. Mm. And I just came from a fabulous talk called Jesus Was Way Cool. Seriously, you should read what he actually says. <laughs> turns out turns out he doesn't hate the gays and he doesn't believe in tax cuts for the rich go figure oh, <laughs> oh that's hilarious <laughs> what about you lee so for today's topic i am going to change my normal drink order and i'm going to order an old-fashioned uh, today and <laughs> i actually got out of a fun and amusing session that was titled the three funnest fallacies Straw man, slippery slope, and two coke. <laughs> I don't think I know the two coke. <laughs> so I also, I'm going to be doing a stiff drink today because I just got out of a very, there was almost a riot at the session I was at, you guys. So I think I'm going to have an absinthe. I need an absinthe, especially if it's Oh, God. It. <laughs> this is serious. All right. I got away. out of a session. All right, get this. It was called A Commentary on a Brief Change to a footnote, footnote 83 of Husserl's ideas, a reconsideration of the eidetic reduction. And Oof. as you can imagine, with that Oof. kind of title and Husserlians, there was a near riot. They were going at it. And I, I barely, <laughs> I barely, I mean, we all know footnote 83 so well, of course, and we all went to like 20 talks on it, but there are some commas in it that they thought were maybe misplaced. And so, And those Husserlians anyway. are a violent bunch. They're a violent bunch. <laughs> so I'm lucky I got out of there with my life, to be honest. And so I need that absinthe now. But speaking of Husserlians, and I'm sorry, already for having already started off by alienating all of our Husserlian fan base. But it's only it's only going to get worse from here because today right, it's only one person. <laughs> today we're going to be talking about the philosophical canon, which I know you guys are as excited as I am to talk about. Sounds heavy. I don't think it has to be. I mean, it's one of these topics that always sounds so serious. We're going to talk about canonicity, right? And whenever you say canonicity, you know it's going to be serious. But seriously, though, I think that we are at a moment in culture broadly that is so reflective on its own past. Mm -hmm. And as slow as it's coming, I think our discipline is starting to reflect on its own past. And I think that all of us, all the three of us, you know, we're trained in a very historically minded way to do philosophy. But I think we're also all sympathetic to where some of these critiques are coming from. And so I think it would be good to sit down and try to figure out what the canon is all about without That's any explosions idea. and without offending too many more Husserlians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down with the first part of that. Right. <laughs> so I'm hoping we can just start off by, you know, this may or may not be old hat to our listeners, but I want to very quickly be able to talk about what the canon is. But first of all, I want to make sure we all have some, when I say there are controversies surrounding the canon, that we have some sense of what those are and what those are about. Just a couple of months ago, there was a piece published in the New York Times about a Princeton professor in the classics, which is an adjacent field to ours, who was essentially arguing that the classics, as it is currently constituted, shouldn't exist. That the way in which classics is studied in Europe and in America is so thoroughly suffused with white supremacist premises 
that if you were to remove those premises, there would no longer be a discipline. And I think, you know, while being very sympathetic to that argument, I think the three of us also were all taking a sidelong glance at our own discipline because people are making similar criticisms about Western philosophy. It's a discipline. I recall, ahead, I, yeah. recall I was so shooken up by that article about the classics program that I called an emergency Zoom meeting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> with, with all of us and, and our friend Adriel Trot to be like, wait a second, help me understand what are the implications of advocating for the dissolution of classics, because it makes you think, well, first of all, I really learned a lot more about classics than I ever knew before in that conversation. But it really, as you point out, makes us ask the question about philosophy as a discipline and whether it should be dissolved in the same way that he was calling for with classics. Yeah. And if any of our listeners have heard the recent term decolonizing philosophy, this is really what we're talking about. There are a lot of moves that have a lot of merit that are trying to diversify philosophy, both in terms of the texts and figures that we study and the questions that we ask, in order to try to ameliorate what is, in fact, the truth of the history of European philosophy anyway, which is that it is deeply embedded, maybe rotten all the way to the core, with patriarchy, homophobia, sexism, colonial ideology, etc. Those are the stakes, right? And I think, you know, I've been doing philosophy for more than half my life, formally. And so I do take these things very seriously. And I also have been so formed by this discipline that these are real matters for us. But I hope that we can maybe also just to get started, let's see if we can specify what we all think we mean by the canon. Because I think one thing that can happen very quickly is that I think we all have an agreement and it turns out that we don't, right? What's really interesting is I was trying to talk to my teenagers' friends about this idea and I was going on. You're and definitely on. not the cool mom. Definitely not. But what are you going to do in a car with kids for like 20 minutes? Oh, yeah. And talk was... about the philosophical kids. <laughs> kids. Well, yeah. I mean, I am, I am who I am. Right. But I mean, about like 15 minutes in, my daughter turns to me and said, Mom, we don't know what the word canon means. And so I thought we sort of take for granted that we're talking about something that everybody just already has an understanding of, but we don't have an understanding of that. So I actually appreciate Ammon's gesture here to be like, well, what exactly do we think counts in the philosophical canon? And what even is a canon? Is it certain thinkers? Is it certain texts? Is it certain ideas in the history of ideas? I mean, what are we talking about when we're talking about the philosophical canon? Because I tend to think of it in terms of certain thinkers. And if I had to imagine what was it that I taught in Intro to Philosophy, what did I get in Intro to Philosophy, and what did I teach the first time I taught Intro to Philosophy? It was Plato, Aristotle, Hume, Descartes, Kant. I think that was it. That was pretty much the canon. Those fellers right there. Yeah. I don't still teach it like that, I promise. Well, I think that you're getting, I mean, first of all, I think that's a great question and it is something that we should talk more about. But I think that in my courses, I tend to think, and actually in our curriculum design in our department, I tend to think about the canon as another way of thinking about if you graduate with a BA in philosophy, what should you know? Or what would it be reasonably expected for you to know? 
Now, that, of course, is a different question from the canon as the essential Texan figures of the discipline. What we expect that someone with a BA or an MA or a PhD in philosophy to know is different than perhaps what we would want to say are the essential Texan figures that should define the tradition. Why? Why would they be different? Well, because there's no women, there's no non-white people and, you know. Right, but but if I, oh, I see what you're saying. What I'm saying is that if you're saying like, but ideally they would come together. Ideally, what we would want people to graduate with a BA, MA or PhD knowing would also be the thinkers and figures that count in something like a canon. So, Lee, it sounds like you might be making a distinction here between the normative canon and the descriptive canon, which will raise some questions later, right? Yes. But it might be like, so I think that when we use the term canon, I do think that somewhere in the back of many people's head, I suspect probably not ours or people who have thought about this more recently, but is something like the best of, like the things that would be on the philosophy's greatest hits album. (laughs) <laughs> Which is sort of what you're getting at um, when you say that like... That reminds me of those, remember those anthology CDs that... Now that's what I call They used to come out, I was like, now this is philosophy, yeah, now this is philosophy 2021. I mean, that was the my... last episode. <laughs> that was the nostalgia episode. Now that's what I call philosophy 2000 has been stuck in my car for the last 22 years. Yeah, when I hear the term canon, I tend to think of what we had. And this is another sort of insider baseball-y thing, so I apologize. But we all had to do master's comprehensive exams. And if you ask me what the canon is, it's the things that was on that exam, precisely because it was this expectation of, okay, whatever you're going to specialize in after this, if you want to call yourself a philosopher in the Western tradition, you need to be able to know these 20 texts. And yeah, presumably it's because they were supposed to be the best. But there was already this judgment about what everybody else thought and what our expectations of what we would have to know in order to be able to truly represent ourselves as philosophers being. I do think that we also want to point out that, again, the three of us were educated in the same basic tradition, which is a tradition that places a lot of emphasis on the history of ideas. And so we tend to talk about the canon in terms of figures and texts and movements, I suppose. But there is a whole other world of philosophers for which the canon might be defined in different ways, not in terms of figures and texts, but in terms of subfields, in terms of questions, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, I think that we also have That's to- That's true. I do think that. that there's still probably, we would they would identify, and I've having talked to folks in the analytic tradition, which is the term that gets used for that, they will still talk about canonical texts within those fields. So they'll be very different than ours. They'll be less historical. But still, if I want to talk about possible worlds for some reason, right, I need to know David Lewis. And so I think that it still becomes this way of knowing certain figures and certain texts and being able to show that you have uh, mastery of them. But it is important, I think, to point out, though, that if we're just talking about the sort of description of the canon, that even within our discipline, there are radically different descriptions of the canon. So if you graduate from my university with a BA in philosophy, there are certain things that I think, if you go out into the world, I hope that you have at the very least a nodding familiarity with. Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Locke, Hume, maybe some existentialism, Marx, you know, et cetera, right? So we, we probably have different figures and texts that we put in there. 
But I know for a fact, because I've sat on a lot of hiring committees for analytic philosophy positions, that that is not true for a lot of them. Just don't have this basic canonical familiarity with the history of philosophy in the same way as people who are trained in what's unfortunately called the continental tradition, which is actually the European tradition of philosophy. So a lot of people in analytic philosophy, I found anyway, are just really not familiar with a lot of texts, definitely not prior to Kant, but in many cases, not prior to the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally fair. And I think it's going to be relevant. I, I, I do wonder sometimes if there isn't even completely different disciplines within philosophy now at this point. One thing that I do want to highlight is that there still is a canon. I should mention that the very idea of a canon does originally come from a list of texts. Oh, go so, on. So, you know, historically, and exactly when this happened is up for debate, but somewhere by the time that Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome, and it went from being a persecuted minority to what was at the time the most powerful empire, there were so many different versions of what counted as Christian scripture. And there were committees which sat down and created a canon that people who have any familiarity with Christianity still know today. And that's where the term comes from. So I think that that's also why when people talk about the canon, there tends to be this emphasis on figures and texts, even if it's ameliorated or mediated by other concepts like mastery of a topic or such. Simon, you didn't really answer. What do you consider the canonical figures and texts? So, okay, so it's the master's list. It's the list that we do as a master's. But to be more to the point, I think that there's a certain amount of guesswork that goes into it. So if, if you're naming like the people, when I think of the canon, who do I think of? Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, because we got our... Nobody got puts Augustine on that list, but people who went to Villanova. You have yeah. to, like, <laughs> so, you know what? put Aquinas on there because you're like, I got to no. throw in somebody from the, middle, <laughs> from the Middle Ages, and I'm not yet comfortable saying even Senna, so it's got to just be Aquinas. Nobody All right, puts all right, Dun Scotus. All right, Plato, Aristotle, Dun Scotus. Nobody puts Dun Scotus on this either. Kant, Hegel, Heidegger, blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, and, and again, so the, the horrifying Hegel, Heidegger, blah, 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 could be my own philosophical autobiography, too, which is the horrifying thing. Or maybe it's um, just Husserlians. <laughs> just Husserl. It's just, it's just the reduction over and over again. But I think that's, that speaks to the point that we all have this idea of there being a canon. And we're all like, yeah, Plato, Aristotle, Kant. But I think that the sort of the disagreement about exactly not even who should be in the canon, but who is in the canon is telling. It tells us something about the vagueness with which, and also the probably the fluidity of the category in ways that we don't want to acknowledge. Because if you really wanted to push me, I actually don't think any medieval philosophers are canonical anymore. Because medieval philosophy just isn't that studied anymore. It's just not that important. Now we're going to get hate mail from all our Catholic yeah, I think, theologians. <laughs> I think medieval Christian I mean, philosophy isn't isn't all that relevant. But I think there's a lot of cool stuff in medieval Islamic philosophy. Oh, I think there's tons of cool stuff. But we'll get That's into that. That's a different that. question. Yeah. Right. We'll, we'll get into that. I think one thing that is implied in the way that we're talking about this is that, and again, this is typical of people who are trained as we were trained, is that we tend to think of philosophy in, in terms of historical periods. So the ancient period, the medieval period, the modern period, the 19th century, for whatever reason, gets its own period. And then what, what very loosely gets called 20th century philosophy, which is now 121 years old. And so one of the really important things to think about in terms of the relationship between the canon as it's understood professionally and critiques of the canon and moves to 
revise or do away with the canon entirely is that, of course, for all of those historical periods that I just named, so all of philosophy up until the mid 20th century, largely in actual fact, excluded women and non-white scholars. That's, of course, not to say that there weren't women and non-white scholars all throughout history who were thinking philosophical thoughts. And many times those brilliant thoughts were being stolen by white men philosophers. But it is the case that one of the reasons that our canon is so problematic is just historically this is the case, is that it has been the product of wealthy, propertied white men. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think it, it highlights something that to come back to when I was claiming that it was fluid, I think there's this weird thing, and this is the thing that I think is being pushed on so hard now, is even though there's a lot of disagreement about maybe the specific figures, specific thinkers, specific texts, the basic ideological force of the canon, I think, is much more fixed. And that's an interesting thing. Right? So yeah, like, okay, maybe we include Augustine, maybe we include Aquinas. Interestingly enough, Aquinas, of course, was an African thinker, but we still call him a European thinker. And so we've got this weird stability. To be honest, I think that a lot of what we understand the canon to be stems from what we take the modern project of the university to be. And I think that the modern project of the university does have an ideological coherence that we don't want to always admit, which is what grounds, whether we're talking about areas, whether we're talking about figures, what grounds the very idea that there's a canon and what grounds why we think a canon is so essential to functioning. I just kind of hear in the background of that question, which is also part of the anxiety about what we are talking about with the canon and whether we should keep it or dissolve it or what we're supposed to do with it, that these disciplines that we find in the university are themselves defined by the canons that they promote and teach. Is that sort of what your point is? That's my view. I mean, we can discuss that, but right, that's my right. view. Because, yeah. Right, because that does get to, I think, the larger question which we're dancing around here, which is what do we do about the canon? And if something like the canon, regardless of whether you're in English or sociology or anthropology or communications or whatever, if that defines a university department or a university discipline, when you're asking about changing the canon or perhaps even getting rid of the canon, you're asking about changing a discipline or getting rid of a discipline. I actually think that's a really good point, Shannon. And it's also worth noting that the philosophy canon has an oversized influence on everyone else's canon. What's, the, what's the, so problem talking... <laughs> <laughs> <And> the problem there? And scene. Yeah, but when you're talking about sociology and psychology and literature and languages, everyone has their specific canons, but all of those canons are so influenced by the philosophical canon. And just back to Ammon's point about the nature of the university, you know, the philosophical canon was formed for the most part when the nature of the university was for the university to be, and I don't mean this flippantly, but to basically be a finishing school, right? A place for enlightened, cultured, propertied men to become better moral agents and citizens. That's not what the current university is. And interestingly, that's at least partially why this critique of the canon is gaining some traction right now, I think, because the truth is, is that now what the university is, is it's a VOTEC, right? It's job training. And it has been since basically World War II. 
And if you want to go and be a good worker, so not necessarily a good moral agent and a good citizen, right? But if you want to go and be a good employee or employer, you do need a lot of the insights of critical race theory, of feminism, of queer theory, of anti-colonial theory and decolonial theory. And those are quite simply were not matters of import to finishing school scholars. I really like I like that way of describing the university. That is not the Votek line. We're getting it to yeah. a lot of universities. I don't necessarily think that most universities are pressing that, but the shift in the nature of the university and the demographic that universities are serving has brought in uh so many more people, yeah. right? And has made it such that it's very hard to just ignore yeah. these questions in the way that it was very easy to ignore them when all you were looking at was the lily white property faces of finishing school. I see, that makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I hope that we can then talk some somewhat about, although I think to a certain degree that's self-evident, the problems with just having the canon be about the interests of lily white property donors. But I hope we can get into a little bit more depth about exactly where all the critiques of the canon are, because I actually think that there's some nuance there that that is probably worth covering. One important part of that, and I would add maybe one addition, Lee, to your history of the university, is I think that there's an important transition in the 19th century. So in 19th century thinking, in that, that part of the canon, right, in the transition from Kant to Hegel, <laughs> I think that there's a move from just focusing on finishing school for the very rich to the management schools for empire. Yeah. And I think that that is different than being a finishing school for the very wealthy. And I think a lot of the problems that we're going to talk about with the candidates. Is it Yes. Though? Because that's a middle class job, yeah. right? So, um. so, so the rise of professors, and again, it's tied to philosophy, right? So when philosophy be stopped being things that gentlemen did on their free time while they were writing out the plague, as we've been told over and over again, Isaac Newton did X, Y, and Z while whatever the <laughs> fuck he was doing in his fucking estates. To, oh, what's up? What's up with the <laughs> Newton hate there? It's really Locke hate that's being read. I hate Locke, so I hate. Oh, I hope we're gonna talk about who we would keep and Locke. who we would who we who we'd kick out yeah. of the canon at some point. I think yeah, I think Locke my hatred was, for Newton Locke was high on my list. Yeah, mine too. I think my hatred for Newton is just spillover for how much I hate Locke. Like it just. It just but wait, let Emma. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to miss this point though. Like the difference between management school for empire and finishing school for emperors. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the the university as this liberal arts bastion in the 16th and 17th century is very much just for the elite. But in the at the end of the 18th, but even more into the 19th and early 20th century, it becomes this breeding ground for the professions. And the professions are not the property class. They're not even really bourgeoisie, although they try to pretend they are. This is where the canon becomes relevant. Our university is the brainchild of Kant and Hegel. And it's their vision of what the subject formation of a proper professional in a nation state as it grows to be an empire is. If, if you want to push me on how all these different ideas of what the canon are, it comes down to some curriculum that's going to serve that end. And I think it's you not just blew my mind. Really? Yeah. <laughs> good, I'm glad. That was that was that was that was pretty good. Thanks. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. But I th I think that's a crucial step between because that's the professionalization. And now, of course, the issue is that like the the GI Bill in America and similar changes in France and England and other Western democracies, whatever the hell that means, the purpose of which was to expand the middle class, promised this kind of professional education to the masses. But of course, the immediate pushback was, well, we don't really want the masses. We don't need all the masses to be managers of empire. And that's where the shift of Votech came in. 
But I think understanding the canon, it's important to understand both of those shifts. Hey, everyone. We love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the HBS hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness. Ammon is at IdeasManPhD. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. When I said that, I hope we could talk a little bit more about the problems with the canon. It seems to me like there's one set of criticisms rightly focuses on representation. That's a super important topic that I want to make sure we talk about. The other that I think was really at the heart of Peralta Padilla's, this Princeton professor's criticism of classics, wasn't just that representation was so bad, but that the way in which the canon was constructed actively contributed to the oppression of women, of racial minorities, of queer individuals. So representation on its own is enough, but it's not just that. It's that the canon actually forms this site of actual oppression taking place. And presumably then, and I think in fact, when we're teaching that to our students, we are potentially performing a form of oppression. Yeah, and the really insidious part of that is that that is also true, well, maybe especially true, of the enlightened philosophers who introduced what the canon understands as critique. So there's this idea in the philosophical canon that philosophy has built into it the means for its own correction and perfection through critique. But again, where we get many of those most powerful and elaborate and sophisticated articulations of critique are from people like Kant, who, as we all know, uh, was a racist. So we had a, we had a listener who really who really let Kant have it. This is a really hard question. Who to kick out of the canon? There are so many people we could kick out of the canon and probably should. I'm going to have to go with Kant, though. Not just for the racism and colonialism, although those are good enough reasons, but they wouldn't differentiate him from his peers so much. I'm going to kick him out because of what he has to say about sex, specifically that quote about uh, sexual love making someone an object that gets cast aside, like a lemon that's been sucked dry. Um, And I guess I would replace him with, since it's specifically for sex that I'm kicking him out, I guess I'd replace him with Janelle Monae. I think she has more interesting meditations on sexuality than he does, and certainly than a lot of philosophers do. So yeah, that's my suggestion. So I would just like to say that Tamsin Komodo's response to that was far better than I could have ever hoped somebody's response to who to kick out of the canon could be, right? Not only is the idea that Kant is racist and colonialist, but as they said, who wasn't at that time? All of Kant's peers were that, but that Kant had a negative view of sex. And so to kick Kant out for sex and then to have Janelle Monet in for sex, not only is an awesome answer to who to kick out, but also stretches the boundaries of who counts as a philosopher to be instead replaced into the canon.
Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And <laughs> Tamsin's recording there, I, I do believe it's so good. It's the actual nightmare of the old guard in philosophy. <laughs> Tamsin yeah. says that I want to kick out Kant and I want to replace Kant with Janelle Monet. And they're making a good point there. I mean, you know, that there are many good reasons. And I've, I'm familiar with Tamsin's work and I know that they could make this argument. However, this is where the controversy is right now, is yeah. that there is a whole generation of philosophers who hear Tamsin and they think they're right. Tamsin's right. And there are a whole nother generation of philosophers who, by the way, have a, a vice grip of control over the careers of the first group of philosophers yep. who are like, what are you thinking? Yeah, well, and we haven't used the term gatekeeping yet, but gatekeeping becomes a big part of it, right? It's like, oh, well, we're not replacing Kant with somebody who the folks in Second Subset would even recognize as a philosopher, right? They would say, but that's not philosophy. And I think that question, but that's not philosophy, is, is one that I want to come back to in the oh, gatekeeping move. I, I, can we not come back to it? You want to do it now? Just, can we just rest with it for, for a moment? Because it goes sure. back to the question I asked earlier about... If disciplines are tied to canons and the argument is about whether to change, expand, alter canons or get rid of canons altogether. And if disciplines are tied to that, then we're asking the same thing about disciplines. And I know we've had this discussion before, and I think we've all bumped heads with each other on mm -hmm. the answer to this, which is, well, okay, but what exactly is philosophy? Because if we don't really know what that is, then the question of what its canon is and whether or not it should have one is always sort of problematic. Because let's say Tamsin's serious, and they really mm -hmm. might be, right? Tamsin might be very serious about this. Put Janelle Monet in there yeah. instead of Kant. It's an awesome sounding idea, but what exactly is the end game then as far as what we consider what we're doing when we're teaching people philosophy in order to get a degree in philosophy? So there's a there's a there's the problem here that I am less well equipped to teach my students Janelle Monet than I am than they are to teach me Janelle Monet. And so if I'm only concerned about keeping my job and I'm I'm not that's not That what, doesn't is, answer my question. No, I know, but because that's not your concern, I know. But but there is but I think there's this question of what are we like if we think that philosophy is a skill that that teaches certain things and we think we're teaching it, when we change what the canon is, we're changing what that skill is also. And we're changing who possesses that skill. And if we're getting rid of the canon, we're getting rid of the discipline. Yes. So so do we need some discipline? Do we need some canon? There was a philosopher, Martin Lentz, who wrote a post for the APA, the American Philosophical Association blog, uh, a few years ago. It was called The Purpose of the Canon. And he said that in some sense, like every other discipline, the purpose of the philosophical canon is just to basically coordinate educational needs. So to show what should be known in mm -hmm. that. This is kind of how I was talking about it earlier. But he calls this a teleofunctional account of the canon. And he says that a teleofunctional understanding of the canon, I'm actually reading from him. So, quote, one of the crucial features of a teleofunctional understanding of canons is that they are not decided on by a person or groups of people, not even by the proverbial old white men. Rather, they grow, get stabilized, and perhaps decline again through historical periods that transcend the lives of individuals or groups. If canons get stabilized by promoting certain educational purposes, then the evolution of a canon will depend on the persistence of the educational purposes they promote. 
So the idea here is that, I mean, I'm not advocating this position, but I do think that this is a common understanding of the canon, that this is what it does. Oh, yeah, totally agree. I do worry, and this is the, the flip side, I worry that the thing that that ignores is the power and the ability of institutions to persist. Exactly. So for example, I regularly teach contemporary moral problems, as I suspect you guys do. Yeah, and several times every semester. I did, nope. right, right before recording it. this conversation. <laughs> and a set piece of that is the Kant essay that Tamsin references, right? Janelle Monet is not a set piece of that. But I actually agree with them that Janelle Monet probably has more interesting things to say about sex than Kant. So if it was just a teleo functional definition, there should be no question as to eliminating the one over the other. But we, and I don't think entirely wrongly, tie Kant into a lot of other things too, such that we want to make sure our students know something about Kant on sex, even though he really sucked about talking about sex. So I don't want to lose the the thread of thinking about Kant because I think that he tends to be a lightning rod in this discussion. So yeah. we should definitely yeah. come back to that. But all right. So there, this raises, I think, another hot issue in this mm -hmm. conversation, which is, okay, so let's say that we get rid of Kant and instead we teach somebody like Janelle Monet on sex. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it wouldn't be that what we're doing as philosophers is teaching certain texts or certain figures, what we're doing is asking questions in certain ways mm -hmm. and formulating thinking and argument in certain ways. And that goes back to another controversial thing, which we've also touched upon, which is, okay, so maybe it's not about the canon. Maybe what we're doing is this magical, critical thinking mm -hmm. and argument, right? So in that case, okay, fine. We get rid of all of those texts and thinkers and we replace them with people who allow us to do critical thinking better. But that just shifts the problem of what it is that we're doing in philosophy. Yeah, because just going back to the point that I made earlier, I mean, that very idea of critical thinking is an enlightenment idea. It right. came, you know, yeah. I mean, at least the way that even critics of the canon when they talk about critiquing the canon, are largely talking about critique in a way that is consistent with the way that the Enlightenment understanding of critique, which we basically inherited from Kant. I think that what Shannon is talking about now is something that I think is really interesting, which is what if we thought about the canon not in terms of figures and texts, but in terms of skill sets, right? right. Or sets of questions. But I, I'm not sure that that gets us out of the woods. It because, does, yeah. Yeah, yeah because right. if we want to say that, you know, really what we're trying to do is make it possible for students to engage arguments in certain ways, engage ideas in certain ways, and maybe we call that critical thinking, maybe we call it something else. I mean, even that, there's a tremendous amount of disagreement about, and even that already is drawing lines in terms of what kinds of questions are possible to ask, what kinds of questions are not possible to ask, and what evidence is acceptable for consideration, what evidence is not acceptable for consideration. So I'm not really sure, like I said, that we, we don't just jump out of the fire and into the frying pan like that. Yeah. So I hate to keep coming back to Kant, but, but do you think, so Kant actually has at the end of the Critique of Pure Reason, which is, by the way, that's the origin story of all canons right there, right, is Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. But there's actually a, a section called the Canon of Pure Reason. And I think a lot of people who don't think that they're doing philosophy in historical ways, but in this more problem-based way, are reproducing that set of biases, 
I'm going to get hate mail from our few analytic listeners, but I think this is the biggest problem with a lot of analytic philosophy, is it's reproducing this moment and doesn't have the historical awareness to even understand that. So here's a risk of, even if we take it to be true, as I think it's, it's fair to say, that the canon has all these problems, it might be that simply eliminating the canon while keeping these structures of thinking in place simply removes our ability to identify and critique where the exclusionary gestures are. Now, that's got the further danger than of being like, well, now you've got to keep on reading these guys, even though we all agree they suck. I don't know about that, because while we all agree that they do suck for some reasons, like the obvious reasons that we've been talking about in this episode, I don't know that we can say they all just suck because the truth of the matter is all of us here and even most people who are highly critical in ways that are far more important in anti-colonial work and anti-racist work, et cetera, they're still engaging these thinkers and they're still engaging not only the ideas, but turning the ideas against them in a form of critique. So I just don't know that this idea that, well, we should just get rid of certain people is necessarily the best course of action. Not that you were saying that, but if you were, that's something that I, I don't know that I'm totally ready to do. So last week, there was a really interesting APA blog post by Dilek Hussein Zadegan and Jordan Pascoe on this exact topic. So they're both Kant experts, and they were exactly addressing this question. So as Kant experts, presumably they have some stake in conversations about Kant. But on the one, you know, their, their challenge was, and I think rightly, that you can't just use the tools of the master, right? So this is the claim. Can we just use the tools of the master against them? And their concern, this is why I understand the argument, I'd be curious if we understand it the same way, was that on the one hand, you can't use the tools without replicating some of the gestures of the master, while at the same time, this activity of critique that we ascribe to Kant is super important in understanding how we navigate the world. And I really recommend all our readers to read their account of it because I think it's a really nuanced yeah. and interesting one. Yeah. Can I interject a personal anecdote here? So Please. I, Always. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually did my, well, first of all, I was an undergraduate forever, but I finished my undergraduate degree in philosophy at the University of Memphis. And one of the things, looking back now, that I somewhat regret about my philosophical education was that I think by and large, I got the critique before I got the thing that was being critiqued. Now, that's good in many ways. I had critical race theory, I had feminism, but the point is, is that I didn't always have already a full understanding of Kant or of Locke or of Hume or of Plato even, you know. And so this is something that I have sometimes worried about in my own classes, in my own teaching, is that I want to be very careful about giving students the critique before the thing that's being critiqued. Not because I think the critique is less important or is secondary or derivative in some way, although of course, by its very nature, I suppose a critique is derivative in some way, but because I do think that it's important to have a complex understanding of the thing that's being critiqued. And so I am less inclined to say of the figures that I think are the most problematic in the current philosophical canon, let's take them out. Although there are some, right? There are some that I think let's just take them out. 
than I am to say, how can we refigure the canon such that we understand that we're presenting these as provisional accounts. And when we're teaching them, we foreshadow the critique that's coming and we highlight the problems in the actual philosophies. You know, I've found it now teaching all of these people, students are already really good at foreshadowing it for you. So it's nice that they do a lot of the work already because they are more sensitive to the problems of these figures that we think. So it opens up a lot of those doors. So I totally agree with you. I think that you teach them. And also at the same time that you are teaching whatever you think the theory is, you are alerting them to what necessarily is problematic in the theory. And again, I know I probably sound like such an old fart, but this is my deeply ingrained history of philosophy, training and belief. And that is that I think it's important to understand that all of our contemporary truths have a past and we don't get rid of the problematic aspects of contemporary truth production by simply excising problematic figures from the past because they still exert such a huge weight. There's such a shadow cast by them that just simply saying we shouldn't study them anymore is not going to undo the problematic aspects that they've caused. Hey listeners, we appreciate you listening to us and we want to hear from you. Feel free to send us an audio clip of your questions or comments at any point to Hotel Bar Podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the interactive page of our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where we regularly post questions about upcoming episodes. And as always, please make sure to subscribe to Hotel Bar Sessions on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you regularly listen to podcasts. I do worry that when we talk about the criticism of the canon as excising the canon, which sometimes it is. And again, like there are some figures who I think we should just excise. I'm curious to know what we all put on that list. But I don't think that that's where most critiques of the canon actually lie. I think that the bigger question is what I call this materialist critique of the canon, which is what are the ways in which the canon has produced the inequities of the world that we still live in? Which, yes, that does require mastery of the canon but it requires a certain kind of mastery that I think philosophy, I had I, somebody once told me that philosophy is just a bunch of fan fictions where the use of canon means something else. And I worry <laughs> sometimes that that's true. Like I, you know, I write on Heidegger who is about as problematic a figure as you can. And I've learned and ding, I've ding, learned ding, so, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that she wants, that Lee wants out, right? Is, is Heidegger. But I've yeah. learned. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I totally do want Heidegger. That's, that's fair. And I totally oh. get it. But I've learned so much from studying Heidegger. Does that mean I've learned so much from Heidegger? I don't know. Right. Yeah. But I've learned so much from studying him. I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that anyone else should read Heidegger. Like, I, I don't know that I, I might be fine with other people exercising him, but I can't separate my own thinking about it from my engagement with this incredibly problematic figure. But it's always been an engagement with the ways in which he produces this problem. Do you think it's worth noting that we Gen Xers were brought up in a tradition of philosophy 
in which our professors, our mentors, and no offense, well, you know, bless their hearts, were <laughs> were hero worshipers. Yes. In the yes. way that yes. we are not. And I yes. do think that our generation of philosophers is more of the ilk of, you know, there are no heroes. And so I think that we're probably better suited to teach the Zoomers. Uh, now that of, that of course is not universally true. There are still the hero worshippers and the people who are trying to continue the lineage of their mentors, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that I'm sympathetic with what Ammon is saying about Heidegger, who I absolutely want to excise. I mean, he would be like t in my top five of people to cut from the <laughs> canon. But I'm sympathetic with what you're describing as like, look, I learned a lot in studying this because in many ways we were part of a transition in the way that people think about what they're doing in philosophy which was tell me if i'm wrong but i think that we three are all in many ways largely critical of our mentors for being hero worshipers in this yes. way you know yes. and so and, and so primarily of heidegger all yeah. of our mentors were primarily <laughs> worshippers of Heidegger. My entire undergraduate Even... and graduate education was largely dominated by Heideggerians. Yeah. Or former yeah. Heideggerians. But, but can I sure. just put yeah. in just one plug for not canceling Heidegger? Sure. Despite no. the fact. Okay. I'm so sure. And I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, but here's why, and it just goes back to my earlier point, which maybe this is just like a, a, yeah, whatever, but I think it's really important. I do French existentialism. It's impossible to understand French existentialism without understanding its relationship to Heidegger. Y'all are Derridians. Sorry, you cannot see what Derrida is doing without seeing it in some kind of relationship to Heidegger, even if it's just like, a, oh, I totally disagree with that. And so I think that you don't have to do the deep plunge, but you can't just get rid of it because he was a Nazi. I'll go one further than you. I agree with what you just said, but here's another reason to study him. It's because he accurately describes this ontological move that I'm mentioning. He just embraces it. Right. Like, I think as much as Kant, you can understand why a canon of hero worshippers is produced in Heidegger. He's very yes. clear right about it. And so I wrote my dissertation on a poet who was a survivor of the Holocaust and who had this incredibly complicated relation with Heidegger. And the fact that it's incredibly complicated is less interesting, I think, than the fact that he, he was able to use his encounter with Heidegger to stage an understanding of the evils of genocide. And, and the poet's uh, name is? I'm sorry, Paul Ceylon. Yeah, I should, I should mention we should use proper names, right? Yeah, so I couldn't understand what he was doing without a deep engagement with Heidegger because I think Heidegger was right about those things. And being very clear about that, I think, enables us to confront oppression and evil in a different way. Okay, well, I just pro forma totally disagree with everything that you just said. <laughs> like, <laughs> let, me just, let me just ask you something. So here's the setup. So recently in my department, my colleague, Max Maloney, and I mm -hmm. uh, had to come up with a new set of general learning objectives for the major, mm -hmm. for the philosophy major. And we basically broke it down into three categories. The first category says students will have a familiarity with, and there's a list of things, right? So historical periods figures. There are even certain terms, like they'll know what 
utilitarianism is. They'll know what the categorical imperative is. They'll be able to give a definition of virtue, et cetera. That's the first category. Second mm -hmm. category says they will be able to effectively respond to arguments against their own position. And then the third category says they will be able to articulate the philosophical significance of, and then there's a list of things, race, class, gender, sex. I think there are others. Ooh, I, I want that. Will you, yeah. will you send that to me? Yeah, I absolutely will. But the idea here is that setting this kind of model of a canon Mm -hmm. And again, I was part of creating this model. So of course mm -hmm. I agree with it, but the benefit of it is that it allows us to keep the traditional philosophical canon. So I don't think that we're graduating philosophy majors out there into the world where someone's going to say, do you even know who Kant is? And they're going to be like, what? You know, like that's not going to happen. They're also going to get the skill sets, right, of being able to effectively understand an argument and respond in a way that philosophers recognize as a quality skilled reply. But all of that, right, is built into this larger context of being able to use both that canon and those skills to understand the philosophical significance of what we might broadly call identity categories. So here's my question. On that model of the canon, would you agree I don't ever have to teach Heidegger? You do not. I do not care if you ever Thank teach you. Heidegger. Thank you. No, no, no. I also no, no, no. don't care if you ever teach Plato or Derrida or... or Hegel or any of the people that I love, right? Yeah, like, I think that Plato would, I, Derrida definitely could go on that model of the canon, but I think Plato would have to stay. Well, so Greek philosophy to me is a totally different beast in ways that we haven't understood because, b precisely because of this notion of the enlightenment and a lot of time, you know, what I love in the Greeks and... Again, I learned this from Heidegger. Actually, I learned it from Herderlin, but through Heidegger. That the Enlightenment notion of the Greeks was part of the myth, right? So so my relationship to the Greek canon is a totally separate question that would take its whole own podcast. So, okay, but sorry, back to... Like, <laughs> I'm not just going to geek out about the Greeks, even though that is always what I want to do. I think you're starting to. I'm starting to, and I'm going to be careful. But I think, Lee, I don't think that there's... In the description that you have of philosophy, which I like a lot... I'm not sure that there is any one figure who is crucial. I don't know that you actually need a canon, unless it is sort of by fiat of saying, well, they have to know Kant or they have to know Plato. Like, yes, you could do it through Derrida. I could do it through Heidegger. I can teach a lot about colonialism through Heidegger, I think. But that doesn't mean that I should or that anyone else should. I think that the question of teaching the canon and the question of how we think, we tie those things so closely together because of our professional identities but I actually think they're different questions. Whatever problems the canon does or doesn't have, let's just play a fun game of who's gone. So one of our respondents said, get rid of Locke and replace Locke with Gassendi because Gassendi at least was in dialogue with thinkers in India in a way that Locke was not. So I won't take Locke because that's already been taken, but I'd be curious. So who would you guys kick out of the canon? So I really struggled with this. I have been thinking about this since we had this episode because I like my heart. I'm like, I don't want to kick anybody out. I want everybody to be able to play on the playground together. But, but this then is the game. Came, but then it came to me and it's obviously Barkley. 
That I don't care what anyone says. He doesn't make sense. And it's I feel like Kierkegaard reading Hegel. Like I feel like I have sufficiently given enough time to it. And for whatever is not clear is not on me. It's on him. So I would get rid of Barkley. If you want idealism, there are better idealists out there. All right. I would probably also get rid of Locke. I think that you can get <laughs> Locke uh, through a lot of other figures. And yeah, but can but I? But even also- his politics, I mean, I'm with you with the metaphysics and epistemology, but even the politics. Yeah, I think you can get the politics yeah, uh, elsewhere as well. Yeah. Well, better in the sense of worse, also. <laughs> That's um, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I, can I also answer who I would add? So yeah. I hope it goes without saying that the whole 20th century, I would add as, as a kind of new historical period and not including Heidegger. But if I could add one philosopher to the canon, the first one I would add is Fanon. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Is Fanon not in the canon? Not yet, I canon? don't think. Not yet? I don't okay. think people, I don't think yeah. people consider him a canonical No, figure. I mean, think of, think of like, for example, the however many 8,000 professional philosophers that are in the United States, what percentage of them are familiar with Fanon? Right. I guess all of my friends, but maybe that's just a self <laughs> You just have really cool friends. I, I, I didn't answer that question. I would add Eben Tufoil. And so I would add- You wouldn't add, add De Beauvoir? She's in the canon. She's in the canon already. She's definitely yeah. Okay, you guys canon. have a really weird understanding of the canon. <laughs> Y'all are thinking of the canon in terms of like your BFFs. No. No, think about like all like all the people. Okay, fine. If if Beauvoir isn't in the canon, then yes, I would. Yeah, add, you would add would feminism add first, right? That's true. I guess I really just assumed maybe because I've studied her for so long that she was part of the club. But you're right. I think, she probably I think isn't. Yeah, I should I don't be know. careful about who's in the club. And Other than yeah. that, are you I would kidding? Add like our, our our profession has had a debate for the last twenty five years about whether or not feminism is philosophy. It is not canonical. You're right. You're right. I thought thought we decided it was. (laughs) Shannon, you and I are not even like 100% like definitely going to philosophy heaven. Like there's a lot of people who are like, there's a lot of philosophers who are like, I'm not not sure they have reason or souls. That's true. That's true. (laughs) That's a really sad and good point. Well, I wanted to kick out Locke. You know, I, I don't like to gatekeep philosophy, but I, the one person I like to say is not a philosopher is Locke. He's an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'll stand by that. But I will kick someone else. I want to proactively, if he ever tries to get in the canon, and if he ever tries to get anywhere near the canon, if Badu ever does, I'm closing the door on him in advance. He can stay the hell out of the canon. So I want to be clear about I that. Feel, I feel bad for, for agreeing with you, but I think I totally agree with We're you. We're going to get hate mail from our, all our Elaine friends out there, right? That's but, right. Uh, yeah, he's living. So I've just kicked someone living out of the canon, right? But a, a more genuinely canonical figure who I would kick out of the canon is, and I feel bad about saying this, but it's Descartes. He's so fun to teach. But there's so many bad, it's such bad No, philosophy. you can't do that. You can't kick out Descartes. That's just no way. You can't do it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I got to agree you, with Shannon here. I can't kick can't. out Descartes? You just can't. I mean, no. 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 For even right. because of all the bad stuff, right? Like all, right. all the animals who are like, we're not machines. Come on. You just got like, to not treat us that way. Like read- they get it. Look, I get that he's fun to teach and I get that he's important, but- 
I like Spinoza so much more. And if we all read Spinoza first, we would just be better off. And so it's it's with reluctance that I kicked him out. But I but I do Shame. want to kick him out. If we're just gonna kick out people we hate, then John Stuart Mill is on the curve. Oh, that was he's my like, other. That was another he's one. Like the yeah. only nice person in the entire history of philosophy. Like when everyone's like, "Well, this guy's a Nazi, and this person was like a slave owner." You like, run Mill, the Mill was a the- nice guy, wasn't he? I don't think I mean he was nice he was nice in some ways but didn't he run the Dutch East India Company or the British East India Company Oh god but, um, well then there he goes too they all suck Now who would I add in Shannon you know the answer to this Uh-oh Friedrich Herderlin Oh <laughs> I love him so much. I know he's not shelling. I was like, is he going to No, God, no. I was hoping you were going to say Nietzsche, but... Nietzsche, Nietzsche's in the canon. Nietzsche's you guys, a... stop with your personal canons. <laughs> no, I no, think Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's in the, in canon. the canon. I had to Nietzsche's do him on my comps. Canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nietzsche's definitely in the canon. If not, sure. if not the Nietzsche. I mean, look, look, look. For sure-sies. If, if Marx wanted, is, like, Nietzsche is. I have a list of philosophers who I think are right and philosophers who I love. The only two places that list overlaps is Derrida, Nietzsche, and Herdelin. Mm. Now you're going to tell me that none of those are the canon. That is my canon. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, I definitely think they're telling us that it's time for last call at the hotel bar. Because last this call. One, this one's coming. Right. This one's going to go on forever if they don't kick us out of here. Fair enough. So thank you for a fantastic conversation. I hope you will both join me for our next discussion where we're going to talk about love. Aww. I know, isn't that What sweet? is love? Baby, Baby don't don't hurt that's what me. we're gonna ask. We're gonna yeah. ask what is love, what are different philosophical conceptions of love, maybe from some different traditions, break us out of this whole canonical way of thinking about these ideas. And uh hopefully we'll hear from some of our listeners about what they think love is. I know you guys are gonna make me talk about feelings again. I know. <laughs> we're gonna no. start by making Lee ask. Or, or tell us whether love is a feeling and what that means. You guys, they're turning off the lights. <laughs> All right. See you next week. Bye. Catch you next time.